grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The setting for today's gospel reading in Matthew chapter 22 is Tuesday of Holy Week. St. Matthew spends four and a half chapters in just this one day in our Lord's ministry, beginning partway into Matthew chapter 21. In these chapters, Jesus delivers five parables, and today's is the third parable. He preaches concerning the end times, and Jesus also silences his scoffers. He warns people of what is to come, especially those who would reject Jesus as the Messiah. So today's parable is spoken relatively early that day. It is the third in a series of three parables, the other parables Jesus would speak uh, later in the day. And these first three parables all touch on a similar theme, and I think it is worth us to summarize or review the two parables that come before this. So the first, first parable is called the parable of the two sons. So Jesus asked the chief priests and the elders of the people, which of the two sons does the will of the father? Which one does the will? The one who says he will not do it, but then regrets it, and then does what the father says, or the other son who says he'll do the will of the father and then doesn't do it. The church leaders replied to Jesus, answering, saying, the first. And Jesus then told them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So here, Jesus rather bluntly counts the tax collectors and prostitutes as the faithful, unlike these church leaders to whom Jesus is speaking. For the chief priests and the elders of the people said they would do the will of God the Father, but they were not. They were rejecting the Messiah, the Son whom the Father sent. Whereas the sinners, that is the prostitutes and the tax collectors, at first did not do the will of the Father, but they would repent as they heard the word of God, and then they followed the Lord. The second parable is the parable of the wicked vine dressers. In this parable, a landowner plants a vineyard, he leases the vineyard to some vine dressers, and then he travels off to a faraway country. He then sends his servants to receive the fruit from his land, but the vine dressers beat and killed or stoned the servants. 
The landowner then sent another round of servants, and the vine dressers did the same to those servants. So then the landowner decides, well, they will certainly treat my son well if I send my son. They will respect him. But when the vine dressers see the son of the landowner, they seize him and they kill him. And Jesus, in summary, says to the church leaders, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus here, again, in rather clear words, is teaching that the gospel is about to be spread to those who are more grateful than the Jews, and destruction is coming to the chosen people, for they largely are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. What do they do to the only begotten Son of the Father? They kill him. Crucify him, crucify him, they will shout in just a few days after Jesus speaks this parable. The next parable is the one that we heard in our gospel reading, the parable of the wedding feast. One commentator had noted that in the last parable, we are left with the king's son being dead. Now in this parable, we have, or a landowner's son being dead, now we have a king's son who is alive and about to celebrate a marriage feast, perhaps picturing the very death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the king gives a wedding feast for his son. He invites many, but those who are first invited do not come. More, as we heard in our gospel, were invited, but they also refused to come, for some busied themselves with something else, while others seized the king's servants, treated them shamefully, and even killed the servants. This not surprisingly angered the king, so he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city, as Jesus declares in the parable. And this much of the parable matches the previous two. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish people, especially of their leadership and of their treatment of the promised Messiah and the prophets and the apostles whom he sends. Too many Jews rejected Jesus. We do not know how many people, especially Jews, were living in the promised land at the time of Christ. I've seen estimates that range from 500,000 to 3 million in the promised land at the time of Christ. And while we hear of Jesus feeding multitudes like the 5,000 and the 4,000, we know that on many occasions, very few are following Jesus. Where are these people as he conducts his ministry? It appears that most people ignored his presence. Some certainly followed him, but some who learned of him and his coming rejected him treated Jesus shamefully, and ultimately crucified the Messiah. And so Jesus tells these three parables to show what would happen to them. They would be judged and they would face the wrath of God, that he would take the kingdom from the Jews 
and give it to people who would truly receive Jesus. In fact, as Jesus speaks this parable, he also is prophesying something that will happen in the year of our Lord 70, about 40 years after Jesus speaks this parable. And that is when the king is angry and he kills, he sends his troops and destroys the murderers and burns their city. That is exactly what happens to Jerusalem again in the year of our Lord 70. That's when the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. They conquered the city. They destroyed it. The Jewish historian Josephus reported that about a million Jews were starved or killed or sold into slavery from that most destructive act, brutal act, by the Romans. But again, God had prophesied it. He had said that it would come, and he gave his reasons why, because they had rejected the Messiah. God's judgment is upon those who reject Jesus. For there is no salvation apart from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Many today falsely believe the same false belief that was held back then, and that is all Jews will go to heaven regardless of how they treat the Messiah or if they believe in him or not. Many falsely believe the Jews will get to heaven just because of their lineage, that they are descendants of Abraham. Yes, Jesus did say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they were doing as they were crucifying Jesus. But Jesus never taught that, those, that they could get to heaven apart from faith in Jesus. Salvation comes only through Jesus. Jesus declared on Thursday of Holy Week, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because Jesus alone atoned for the sins of the world. He alone died on behalf of all people. He alone shed his innocent blood as the acceptable ransom payment. And so salvation is found in Christ alone. Now, under Roman control, beginning in the year of our Lord 70, after they destroyed the city and destroyed the temple, what happened to Jerusalem is it became a secular city, became uh, occupied largely by Romans, many of them in the Roman army. The population of Jerusalem dwindled. The Jews scattered across Europe and Asia, as did the Christians through the preaching of the gospel. And for the next 18 centuries, there were no major movements among Jews or Christians to restore Palestine to Jewish control. Christianity was banned in the Roman Empire for the next nearly 300 years until the year of our Lord, 312. But the Christian church did not flounder. Instead, the Christian church flourished underground within the Roman Empire. Many Christians settled in Israel after Christianity was legalized in the Roman Empire in 312. They even built Christian churches on some of the holy places. The Jews, by the Romans, were forced out of Jerusalem when Jerusalem was destroyed, and they largely did not return until the Persians drove out the Romans in 614. Upon that victory, the Persians and the Jews slaughtered thousands of Christians in Jerusalem. 
But just a couple of decades later, the city would be conquered by the Muslims and remain in that control until the 1900s. Christians tried to return to the land to Christianity through the Crusades. And in the same year that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Castle Door Church in Wittenberg, that is the year of our Lord, 1517, the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Turks, also Muslims, conquered Jerusalem. They took a census in 1525, and there were only 5,612 residents in Jerusalem, with 12% of them Christian, 21% of them Jewish, because of the last couple of decades they were starting to return, and 66% of them Muslim. 400 years later, in 1917, the British conquered the city during World War I, and mandated that the land be a Jewish national home, which resulted in a mass immigration and, of course, much conflict. The British took a census in 1922, so 101 years ago, and they found 750,000 people living in all of Israel, of which 11% were Jewish, 9.5% were Christian, and the remaining 78.5% were Muslim. Now, 100 years later, there are 10 million people living in Israel. 74% of them are Jews, 21% are Arabs, and 5% are others. The lowest rate of Christians in history since Jesus rose from the dead. The terrorist attacks by Muslims in recent weeks on Israel is clearly wrong. And so is the persecution of Christians by Jews that has been going on for the last century in the Holy Land. Worldwide, Christians have turned a blind eye to our Palestinian Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who have been living in the Holy Land and are suffering at the hand of the Jews in Israel. There are Christians who hold to this Zion Zionist nationalism who are too focused on protecting Israel as a Jewish state than they are thinking or considering about the Christians living there. For they claim that the Jews have divine right to live in Israel and that they must live there for Jesus to return. Their interpretation of the Bible is wrong. It was popularized in the late 1800s by a man named Schofield, and you can read a little bit about that on the handout that's on the bulletin table called Whose Land Is It? This false belief has been promoted beginning in the late 1800s and has taken root in American foreign policy. There is nothing in the Bible that says that the Jews must live in Israel. Instead, God wants something even better for them. Not that they have a desert land for them to live in, but that they could go where the true fountain of Israel is found, where they can have the springs of living water abound among them, where they can abide in the gospel of Jesus Christ, where they can receive the true peace of God which surpasses all understanding, and that only comes as they hear about Jesus, who died for them and rose for them and gives them the gift of eternal life, through Jesus alone can they be saved. 
And so our prayer for all who dwell in the Holy Land is that they would once again, be, that this would once again become a Christian land, as is our prayer for our own land in which we dwell. In the first portion of today's parable, Jesus told of the invitation that the Jews had received for, for obtaining the saving gospel. In the second part of the parable, the invitation then goes out to everybody. Go out into the highways, go out and find as many as you can, good or bad. And that basically is Jesus saying that the gospel will be spread to the ends of the earth. As the parable of the sower suggests, the seed will fall on any ground. As the sower says, oh, what of that? Oh, what of that? All are invited to our Lord's gracious invitation for our Lord's desire is that no one should die apart from Christ but that all would be saved by coming to the knowledge of the truth our Lord's desire is to fill heaven with saints with people who call upon Jesus as their Savior our Lord's desire is to save you most of you probably are unable to trace your genealogy back to Abraham. But that does not matter. For the scriptures teach that the true children of Abraham are those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have been called by the gospel and baptized into Jesus. And so the true Israel, according to the New Testament scriptures, is the Christian church. We are part of the true Israel. As Christians, we are the true sons of Abraham. We are among those when Abraham was told to look at the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. We are counted in that multitude. God's chosen people called out of darkness into our Lord's marvelous light we have been illumined by Christ. We have received his gifts. We are members of his family. We are adopted by baptism and covered with the very righteousness of Christ. He has invited us and he has received us. Whatever past we may have had, no matter how great our sins have been, he covers us with his very righteousness and he is happy to receive us by grace through faith that we now belong to him, redeemed, restored, and forgiven. If you notice, the context for today's parable is a wedding feast. Jesus, the Messiah, has established himself as the very bridegroom. And those who are opposing God's invitation to his banquet, and they, they are opposing the invitation of God to be the bride of Christ. Those who receive him celebrate with joy the salvation that they receive. What a blessing it is to participate in the great and glorious feast of the gospel even now. For through it we hear of our Lord's bleeding and dying love. We rejoice in his resurrection knowing that as Jesus lives, so shall we. And he feeds us a most holy meal, a banquet feast the very body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins under the bread and the wine. There's a third component to this parable. 
It concludes in a way that may seem rather strange. You would think that the king, having invited good and bad, anybody who would simply show up, that he would be happy that the wedding hall is finally filled with guests. But he, when he looks and sees his guests, he sees one that is not wearing the wedding garment that the king had supplied to him. The king says that that one guest is to be bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is speaking of those who try to enter heaven according to their own terms and they will not be saved. They will be condemned to an eternity in hell. Why does Jesus end his parable in a way like this? Well, because he first taught that the Jews will be condemned if they reject Jesus. Now he must also teach that anyone else will be condemned if they also reject Jesus. You see, it is only by faith that we can be considered righteous. No one can get to heaven according to his own terms. All are sinners, therefore all sinners must be clothed with the garments that God provides to cover for our sin. That happens in our baptism. For when we are baptized, we are given the robes of righteousness, the garments of salvation. In our baptism, we are clothed with the very righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are joined to his death and resurrection, and we have died to sin, and we have arisen to newness of life. It is written, therefore, in Galatians 3, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Isaiah also declared, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That is the garment that we all need so that we can appear before our Lord faultless so that when we are received into heaven, we have washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb, and we are covered with the very righteousness of Jesus, so that he counts us truly worthy guests for our Lord's heavenly banquet. This all happens because of Christ, who died in our place to take our sin away, and covers us with his very righteousness so that we appear before our Lord as redeemed and faultless. Salvation awaits all who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and for that we give him thanks. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.